Okay, all right, so a number of years ago, um, a mentor of mine uh, recommended a Google Talk. Anybody ever listen to Google Talks? <laughs> no? Yeah. Yes, one of you. I don't know. <laughs> uh, I think they're fantastic. Okay, so um, it's like a perk for employees at, at Google. They bring, Google brings the, gr- the, the greatest sort of minds from around the world and presents uh, ideas to their employees just about anything random stuff, just so you know, homework does not stop for those of us that are still growing after college. Um, it doesn't stop. And so G- Google employees will often talk about the, the, one of the greatest perks that they get is actually experts coming in and teaching them lectures. Imagine that. Um, that, that, that they would call that a great perk. Um, and then after it's done, they just sort of share it with the world on, over YouTube, so you can get all the Google Talks on YouTube after a certain amount of time. Um, well, I was recommended this talk by a guy named Daniel Siegel. Uh, he's a clinical professor of psychiatry at UCLA uh, and the director of something called the Mind Sight Institute. He wrote a, a, a bestseller book called Mind Sight. Uh, and he was presenting on this idea of mindfulness. Anyway, you can find this. Uh, I should have written it down. Uh, in case you're interested, you can listen to the podcast episode or something from this. Uh, if you're interested, um, you can Google uh, Daniel Siegel. Google Talk Mind Sight. <laughs> Nobody's going to remember that. <laughs> anyway, uh, you, you can find it. You guys are clever. You're in college. Um, anyway, at one point, this guy was discussing how we can effectively strengthen our prefrontal cortex. It's part of our brain right up here. Um, uh, and it's like right on the front of your forehead. Um, and, and the prefrontal cortex is this, it's this wild part of our brain that is associated with some amazing things. So I want you to look at this list real quick to see the kinds of things that the prefrontal cortex is associated with, okay? Regulation of your body, attuned communication, like focused and tuned in communication. If you have trouble getting distracted and you want to have attuned communication, your prefrontal cortex has a lot to do with that. The balancing of emotions. Do you ever wish that you could regulate and balance your emotions a little bit better? How about the ability to extinguish fear? You ever find yourself wishing that you could keep fear a, a bit more at bay or under wraps? Some of you, I really long for this, the ability to pause before acting. Self-awareness, empathy, the capacity for morality, intuition. I mean, look at this list, y'all. That's a, that's a crazy list of things. That this, this one area of your brain has so much involvement with. Dr. Siegel suggested something, um, <coughs> excuse me, really, really profound to me in, in the sense of its simplicity uh, it, it sounded a little guru-y or something. I don't know what it, it was. sort of weirded me out a bit. But, but listen, check this out. He said by, see if you can follow, paying attention to our intention. Okay, you with me? Paying attention to our intention and becoming aware of our awareness. Our prefrontal cortex becomes way more active and effectively stronger. Literally, this is like a, a, a global expert coming in, paid a bunch of money by Google to come present this idea, and his main advice is, is, is pay attention to your intention and become aware of your awareness. Pay attention to your intention and become aware of your awareness. Uh, and the benefits of doing this are crazy. When we do this, check this out, like we can measure people's blood pressure decreasing when they do that. You can measure people's immune system getting stronger. You can measure white blood cell count growing. We be actually become more empathetic people. All of these things begin to spike and peak. When you pay attention to your intention or when you become aware of your awareness. So like at first he started saying this and I was like, what? But then he started listing benefits and I'm like, yo, that's like a miracle drug. 
you know? Like, that's crazy, the kinds of things that can happen. I was riveted. <coughs> and then, because I'm a pastor, uh, this, this sort of hit me, and it went this direction, um, that the way in which prayer has been modeled for us and taught within the church, I mean, from the Psalms and the Bible, which is the prayer book of God's people, the Hebrew people themselves and the way that they prayed outside of those things, the church fathers, the mystics, right on through the saints in our time, prayer in the way that it's been taught and modeled to us, actually employs both of these things at its very core. Paying attention to our intentions and becoming aware of our awareness, which means this, that when we pray in a way that promotes awareness and attention, that the very act of prayer has a healing and strengthening effect on our bodies. Do you get that? Listen to this. The act of praying strengthens your immune system. Praying regula- helps you regulate your body better. Praying increases your empathy and intuition and your ability to distinguish fear and your ability to pause before acting. I, 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 I get a little, a little nervous, and I have this—this uh, this isn't in my notes. Oh, gosh. Um, okay, I, I get a little nervous tonight talking about um, sort of following Jesus just because of all the good that he, that he can do in your life because it presupposes that we'll see all that good from the outset, and it sort of sets up God to, to be the means to an other end, like uh, power, success, marriage, health, something like this. And that becomes a bit tricky. Uh, Jesus does sort of put a carrot out in front of us. He says something to this effect. If you really want to find your life, what's the carrot? Your life. You understand that? Like, if Jesus says, if you want to find life, you see what he's doing? He's lifting up a desire you have, which is your own life, and he's putting it before you saying, you want that? But, but, but check out his advice to you then. Lose it. And it's really frustrating, okay? But that, that's in my head right now as a, as a bit of a nervous correction against some of what I'm saying today. But I, I want us at this point of the semester and in this particular season to really focus on this. It's, it's, what is it, four weeks, three weeks, three and a half weeks into the school year? That feels like a year ago to me. The school year, just the beginning of it seems so long ago. And, and, and Kirsten and I were just talking, and I know for many people that, are, especially freshmen that are new to college, it may feel like the wave has crested a little bit, like all, all the, the buzz of the new years left, and if you haven't already developed your best friends, too late, you know, or something, uh, chill, take a breath, just take a breath, okay? Uh, buckle up, you know? Um, but t- tonight, I think because of that, those sorts of thoughts and the fact that, you know, tests are coming and, and already people are wondering if they make good decisions and these kinds of things, um, I, I want us to slow down in this, this passage we're looking at and just pay attention to how good God is. Um, and so tonight, even though there is, I would like for you to follow Jesus just because of how lovely he is, and he is, but he doesn't just present his own loveliness to us. He tells us about all these wonderful things that he wants for us. And it's interesting to me, it was fascinating to me listening to this talk. Uh, see, I'm circling pack, how good that was. Uh, uh, it was fascinating listening to how much this, uh, this clinical psychiatrist, this guy who teaches, he's, he's like one of the foremost experts, particularly in child psychiatry, um, about how healing it is for us to do this thing God says to just do with him all the time. Is it true, Dr. Siegel, that if I was to commune with God most of my day, my, I would be more like a superhuman? The answer is yes. Because that's just how good God is. That talking to him is good for you, regardless of the benefits from uh, a confession or, or his responses or something like that, right? Like, um, and it's caught me off guard, friends, because I'm so prone to think, and I, I suspect you are too, I'm so prone to think that God, com- God commands us things that are just arbitrary. 
Like the things that he wants for us are totally arbitrary. That the way he invites us to live is, is actually just a matter of taste. That's all it is. Like he likes this flower over this flower. It turns out he likes Bible study, you know, or something like that. Or he doesn't like me having sex with lots of people. Or it's not, like it's just a matter of taste. That I might read the Bible or fast or tithe or love my enemies or pray for others or fight sexual, for, for sexual purity or gather with, to worship with other Christians because I have some notion that God likes it. But how often do I realize that all of these things are actually ways in which God wants to give us good things? And tonight, I invite you to consider the fact that what God wants for you is good for you. That he made the universe with a particular direction in its grain, and if you go with the grain, it's really good for you. Let's pray and we'll get into the text. Um, Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations and thoughts of each one of our hearts be holy and pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Have y'all ever walked, uh, like a, uh, some of you uh, germaphobes are going to freak out by this. You ever walked alongside like a wall and just kind of put your hand out? Let your fingers kind of bounce along the surface of it? You ever do that? Like a fence post and you're feeling your fingers like flap against the wood? You know what I mean? Or like if you're walking in a field or like along the side of hedges. Uh, I, I do this sometimes walking by, I don't know where, there. Um, next to the, what used to be the corner store, now it's resident housing stuff, whatever. There's a little walkway there with really bad smelling Bradford pear trees. You know, that smell like vomit all over the side of the sidewalk. But there's that hedge there, and sometimes I'll walk and I'll do this on the hedge, and I'm like, ugh, you know. Like, just because I have this temptation to just reach out and, and touch those things or something. I don't know, maybe that's weird, but I do that a lot. Anyway, um, <laughs> totally lost my place. Okay, uh, I, I want you to imagine something like that, because something like that was happening um, one quiet Saturday, uh, probably afternoon or morning or something, about 2,000 years ago, as Jesus and his disciples were walking through a grain field. As they were walking, some of his disciples were, were, were going like this, to the top of this wheat, and they were ripping off every now and again the top of a stalk of wheat, and they would take it in their hands, and they'd roll it in their hands to separate the seed of wheat, or the seeds of wheat, from the chaff. <sighs> Probably blowing away the chaff, which is against uh, some of the Sabbath laws. And then they eat it. Wheat is basically the equivalent of fast food in the first century. Um, tr truly, that's, or, and actually before that, um, that was food on the go, okay? It's packaged, prepackaged for you, and you're ready to go. Uh, and, and while they're doing this, eating wheat, interestingly enough, uh, I, God, it's off my notes. Oh my gosh, I'm sorry, y'all, for how long we're going to be here. Um, uh, interestingly enough, Jesus, um, in this story, it's just so fascinating to me that he's not doing this. It's like he's accused of things, um, that, that are always just proved false or misunderstood. I mean, like at one point he's standing before Pilate, and Pilate says, all these things you've accused him of, I can't find anything wrong with him. Even in this story, it's his disciples eating the wheat. Not even Jesus. I just find that fascinating, okay? Um, but these Pharisees, these religious leaders, are, see this happening. See the disciples ripping off the tops of this wheat stalks, um, pressing out the chaff, uh, which is the shell kind of around the wheat seeds, right? And then eat, and eat this wheat. They see this, them doing this, um, and we aren't sure why they're sitting there or watching him. Maybe they're just sitting alongside the road. Uh, maybe it's somebody's backyard. After all, in the book of Deuteronomy, we see God giving instructions to his people to allow neighbors and strangers to eat wheat that they gather with their hands from the fields. God's always looking out for strangers, and he likes fast food, apparently. But whatever the reason the Pharisees, these religious leaders, are there— they see the disciples doing this, and they're incensed. They're, they're so angry. This is after a couple other things, but we're only in Mark chapter 2. You can catch up, okay? Um, but they're incensed because this is happening on a Sabbath day. Sabbath. 
Sabbath means rest. It's a day for the people of God uh, set aside to rest. Just like God did in the creation story at the beginning of Genesis, where we see this rhythm of six periods of labor following by a period of rest, God commands his people to do the same. To labor for six days and rest for one. I submit to you that most of us do neither of those. We neither labor well, nor do we rest. We sit in this middling busyness where we push papers around and we walk to and fro and we think about all the things we're going to do, but we neither labor nor rest, which is why it feels so good to get a good night's rest and it feels so good to do something difficult with your body and exhaust yourself. It is good to labor and it is good to rest and God has built into our lives a seven-day rhythm of that and he commands his people to do it actually. It's not just an invitation to labor for six, rest for one, it was, and it was for their good. It was for their enjoyment, for their reflection, for the remembrance of God's goodness. My, my, my favorite word for it is it's for a kind of recreation, which, which harkens back to that Genesis story in the beginning. It's, it's a time of recreation where we see God at the end of creation looking out at all he has done and saying it is very good. What would it be like for me to embrace Sabbath rest in such a way that I could take a breath and, 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 and unclench my knuckles and breathe for a minute? Uh, I said that twice, but I need to do it a lot. Uh, and, and spend some time reflecting and thinking and, 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 and dreaming. And all, but, but whatever, before I lay my head down to sleep on a Sabbath day, could I get to a point when I said unequivocally, that is it's just very good. I think there's a kind of recreation that God wants for our spirits and our bodies on a Sabbath day. And I think it was commanded, well, it was commanded by God because it's good for us, but I think it was also commanded because he knows that we need it to be commanded for us to take it very seriously. We, some of you really, really struggle to work, but even you also struggle to rest. You don't struggle to pacify yourself. You don't struggle to distract yourself to procrastinate, to do it. You struggle to rest. And I, I, I suspect God commanded it because he knows, like you don't, I don't have to, God doesn't need to command me to eat ice cream or eat popcorn, which is my favorite food. I eat it at least five nights a week. Um, and everybody's looking at my stomach, uh, probably. Uh, right when I said that, anyway. Um, I'm super self-conscious. Uh, okay. Um, uh, I eat popcorn all the time. I don't need God to say, Jason, you must eat popcorn five nights a week. I got that covered. Uh, I, I need him to, to command me to take care of my body. I need that. And I think God commands rest for something very similar. This is what Sabbath is about. It's actually, we need help for us to look out for our own good, friends. We need help in looking out for our own good. That's what Sabbath's about. And this day of rest, is, it had become one of the most unique things about God's people. A day off of labor to rest was like the strangest thing in the ancient world. It was so revered in the ancient world that religious leaders had set up all of these self-made rules around it to make sure that they didn't break the Sabbath command to rest. So a person could walk. This isn't in the scriptures, but these are religious leaders that are, are sort of looking at what God commanded and trying to interpret it in various circumstances. And, and, and um, if you can think about, um, I don't know, like they're trying to put packaging around it so it doesn't get infringed upon ever, that if I break man-made rules, at least I won't break God's rules. Do you see the point? Like they have boundaries after boundaries after boundaries. Well, one of them was you cannot walk 
2,000, you can walk 1,999 paces on a Sabbath day, but not 2,000 because that's a journey, which is work. So you could walk 1,999, but not 2,000. Or if a building fell on the Sabbath, now again, this is not in the scriptures, this is in uh, reflections on the scriptures and rules that began to get laid down for the Jewish people at the time. Um, If a building fell down on the Sabbath, enough rubble could be removed to find out if there were any victims alive. And if they were alive, you were permitted to remove just enough to rescue those victims. But if, some, if somebody was found dead, as soon as you discover that they were dead, you were to leave them alone until sundown. You see how specific that is? Many of these specific rules were, were not given by God, but were just the application of God's command to specific circumstances. God commanded us not to work, so what does that mean? And y'all practice this. Many of you, depending on the, the, the religious communities you've grown up in, practice this all sorts of ways. You know, I, I mean, how many of us have grown up in a context where we don't cuss because we're told that you don't take the Lord's name in vain, which has nothing to do with cussing? I don't know. That's a weird application of it. Uh, it does mean something else, pretty intense, but it doesn't have anything to do with cussing. Um, oh, you, oh you, um, you should let no unwholesome talk come from your mouth. So some of us will get so legalistic with that, we'll go, I'm not going to say a certain four-letter words, but I will totally gossip. And do, do you see how we like start drawing these like weird boundary lines around things? I remember in college, um, I had sort of had this moment where I realized that the, the particular kind of music I was listening to was having a very detrimental effect on my life. I was listening to an enormous amount of R&B, and all I wanted to do was marry somebody quick. Uh, and it... Um, <laughs> And, 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 it was, and I was like, I need to stop listening to R&B, uh, which was really heartbreaking because I have some really good R&B in the mid-90s, um, uh, and I still go back and listen to that. But, uh, but I, so I put that aside for a minute, and, and, then, uh, and I remember my, my friend, my roommate, saying to me, how come you're not listening to that stuff? And I was like, well, I just don't think it's very good for me. He's like, well, then how come you are also watching R-rated movies? And I was like, what the hell is this? Like, where did that come from? But like, we all, like, I just said hell. Some of you are really offended. Sorry. Um, uh, that's what I mean. We draw these lines, like certain things we can do and not do. And we, we draw these sort of, and many of these things are not in the scriptures. It's just our attempts. And I don't, this is not me trying to come against anybody in this room. I'm saying we're always doing this. I'm attempting to apply ethics or, or a good way of living or something to a particular circumstance. Many of these things were just that. God commanded us not to work, but now we've got to ask, what does work mean? What does work mean? Well, if I'm trying to separate the husk of a peanut from the peanut itself, and I use air to blow away the debris, that is a kind of work that's very similar to harvesting, which is definitely work. So you cannot separate desirable from sorry, you cannot separate desirable from undesirable things using air. That's actually a rule. Sorry, that's actually a Sabbath rule invented by man to try to respect God's command. That you cannot separate desirable from undesirable things with the use of air. Do you see how specific that can get? That's a rule we made, and that's the level of exactitude that the Pharisees were leveraging against the disciples of Jesus in this moment. They were breaking off heads of grain, rolling it in their hands, and the Pharisees don't say, oh look, they're eating grain, or they're rolling it in their hands. They say, they're harvesting it. Look at the text. They're harvesting it, right? Because you see what they're doing? They're taking this action and interpreting it in this big way. God does not want his people to work on the Sabbath. He wants them to rest. They're picking grain, separating wheat from chaff, and using it for food. Isn't that what we do when we harvest wheat? 
Therefore, they're breaking God's law. That's what they were doing to him. And Jesus, like he does, he comes to the aid of his friends. Haven't you ever read about what David did, Jesus said? Jesus often appeals to his own authority, and he's about to in just a second. But first, he sort of beats the religious leaders at their own game by appealing to King David. David had had just run away from King Saul, as you can read this in 1 Samuel chapter 27. Uh, David had just run away from King Saul because the king wanted to kill him. Incidentally, he tried to kill his son too, and there's a beautiful, beautiful and intense story in chapters 26 and 27 of 1 Samuel. David, uh, the king wanted to kill David, and so he's on the run, and the first place we know he stops is the tabernacle on the way out of town, begging the priest there to give him some food. Why? Super spiritual reason. Because he's hungry. He's hungry, which is about as spiritual as it gets. And the priest gave David food simply because he was hungry and there wasn't any other food. There wasn't like this weird sort of jumping through theological hoops. Well, on the seventh Sabbath of the new moon, uh, it's okay to... He's, right, if you, in that text, for, oh, sorry, it's 1 Samuel 21. Um, I wrote it down. Uh, and any, any of the following texts in the Bible, if you start there and you look forward after David did this thing, you will never read any criticism about what happened in that moment, ever, in the whole, in the whole of the Bible. David literally broke the law. Jesus says he broke the law. He broke the law, and it was okay. If you're hearing me right, you should be, some of you should be a little nervous. King David broke the law in the middle of the tabernacle, totally okay. One commentator notes that it isn't even an excuse that Jesus is talking about. He's calling it precedent. And he explains, Jesus explains what he means uh, by doing this, by saying that the Sabbath was made to meet the needs of the people, not people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made to meet the needs of people, not the people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. Now, now hold up. He just jumped from David eating bread in the tabernacle to the Sabbath. Here's how that works. In David's case, the law about bread was made. The law about bread was made back in Exodus. It's repeated again in Deuteronomy, which means another law. You have similar stories in both cases. In Exodus and Deuteronomy, the, the, the law about this bread, this holy bread, was made so priests didn't go hungry. These people that were set apart to serve in the tabernacle of God, he's like, look, these, God was thinking, you know, these, uh, I'm out of my pay grade talking about God thinking, but, um, but these priests were in the middle of the tabernacle, um, and, and they were not out harvesting their own grain, they didn't have their own crops, they didn't have their own places, they were set apart for the people to serve God and these people, they didn't have their own food source, and so people would bring in tithes and offerings, and some of that would go to the priests to eat, and there were certain breads set aside for them to eat, and how messed up would it be if the very thing set apart to feed the hungry could not be used to feed the hungry. Do you see that? David came in the tabernacle, and if you read the story, the priest literally says this, we don't have any regular bread, there's holy bread though, which I guess you can have. He actually does qualify, he says, if, you're, if your guys aren't sleeping with women a lot right now, uh, you can read the text, it's fascinating. Uh, they go on for a bit about that. Um, but he says, we don't have any regular bread, but we do have holy bread, which I guess you can eat. That's as theological and practical as it gets. He's, David is breaking a law. The priest is breaking a law by giving David the bread to fulfill the purpose of the law. Let me say that again. David's breaking the law. The priest is breaking the law in order to fulfill the purpose of the law. Why was that law made? To feed people that were hungry. 
David's coming in hungry, and David and the priest go, well, without the common, we don't have the commentary, but we know from what Jesus said, and I'll try to tease this out throughout the rest of the sermon, we know that this context is these guys are knowing that God cares about hungry people being fed more than he cares about special bread. I did not mean to make a run, um, but I really want to make another one. Um, I'm not going to. Uh, at times, this is, this is going to mess with some of you, at times there are exceptions to laws which appeal to the very spirit of the laws. At times there are exceptions to laws which appeal to the very spirit of laws. For example, we have speed limits to keep people safe. Would you agree with me that speed limits are generally uh, kept to keep people safe? Some of you might think that they're for, uh, you know, police officer quotas or something. I don't know. But, um, but generally speed limits are to keep people safe. But there are times when police cars and ambulances break the speed limits in order to keep people safe. It's not okay for a police car, actually, if you, I mean, there are rules for how fast a police car can drive. Like, if you're a police officer, you actually can't, depending on the city and county that you live in, you can't just, like, chase people as fast as you want to go. You should, if you're ever trying to outrun a cop, you should know what that speed limit is. Uh, so that you can plan accordingly, okay? Because uh, they're not allowed to go past a certain speed. And it's for this reason, to keep people safe. But if you see an ambulance speeding down the road, like, I actually think, I, I've, I'm a rule follower. I like rules a lot, um, a lot. Uh, and, um, and so, like, uh, I, I, it would be very difficult for me but, um, to, to, to sort of break the speed limit above what I think is tolerable because I don't think going um, 10% over is breaking it. Um, but if, I go, if I'm going 11% over, I start to feel pretty bad about it, and, uh, which is sort of weird for some of you, I'm sure. But, but if my wife was, like, in labor, because this is always the safe uh, example or story, if she was in labor, I would go faster, uh, and the whole time I'd be wondering how fast is, is okay. So if I do get pulled over, I wouldn't get pulled over. I would just keep going to the hospital. Um, uh, but then w- would I tell the cop it's totally okay because my wife was about to have a kid and I was trying to keep her safe? And I would actually feel justified in breaking the law. As if, if I could tell the cop the situation, he would go, oh, totally, the law doesn't apply in that situation. Like there are these moments where, uh, where breaking the law is, 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 um, is intended to actually fulfill the, the spirit of the law and why it was sort of given in the first place. And something like this was happening that day with David and the tabernacle. This bread was set aside to feed the hungry, and they broke the law to feed the hungry. Something like this was happening that day when Jesus was strolling through the grain fields with his friends. And the Pharisees missed it, and so he tells them, you've missed the point. The Sabbath wasn't made for humans. Sorry, the Sabbath was made for humans. It's exactly the opposite of what I just said. The Sabbath was made for humans, not humans for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for us, not us for the Sabbath. Y'all, many of you, maybe all of you don't practice Sabbath or think much of that word. For them, hearing this is loaded. There are very few things that are more robustly Jewish and that we have uh, no sort of um, uh, wiggle room in. This is a huge identifying piece for us. What do you mean it's made for us? We're not supposed to think it's the other way around. As if you have been made, friends, for another good. As if God has a particular way he wants things, and he just made you to fulfill it. Which, incidentally, is virtually all of the ancient Near Eastern religions, except for the Hebrew one. All of them. The gods, plural, either wanted to sleep together or they're fighting all the time, 
uh, one or the other, um, and, uh, and they needed human, humans were like a nasty byproduct, I guess, in some cases, or they needed to make humans to do the dirty work that they didn't want to do. To, to, so they could carry on with the life they wanted to live. Only the Hebrew story tells a totally different one. A totally different one. That God did not make humans to fulfill some other purpose. He cares most, that, that he, somehow he cares, like for example, because of the things we think about today, that God cares about sexual purity, prayer, and Bible study, but he, but he cares about us only in so much as we fulfill that? No. What God cares about most is you and me. I'm struck with the fact that we probably don't believe it, and so we just let that just kind of go over us and like, yep, there's another Bible thing. What God cares about most is you. He made all of this for you and me, including the law. He made the universe with a particular direction to the grain, I said, a direction which promotes our flourishing. And if you go with the grain, it's good for you. If you do not sin in your anger... If you do not lust, if you mean what you say, if you keep your piety to yourself, if you gather together regularly with God's people around His Word and sacrament, these are not just arbitrary personality things. These are ways of life in the kingdom of God which are good for humanity. The Pharisees were worried to death about right and wrong, and Jesus is trying to have a conversation about life and death. I submit to you there, there, there may be few paradigms which need to be shifted in your life more than that. Or let me say that positively. That's a paradigm you should shift. If you think mostly about right and wrong, I encourage you to start thinking about life and death. If when you're thinking about uh, gathering with Christians, if you're thinking about sexual boundaries or not boundaries, if you're thinking about what you do with alcohol, with money, with your hobbies, with your free time, what you watch on Netflix or YouTube or uh, whatever, whatever, what classes you take, I encourage you to think less about right and wrong and more about life and death. For many of us, when we encounter God's laws, and the way that he desires life for us, it doesn't seem very good to us. And I think that's because we don't know what's good for us. And this, uh, this shouldn't surprise you. I, w- I want you to try as hard as you can, very quickly, to think about your histories with, with anything, really, with anything you've been given stewardship over, with a friend, with romance, with time on, uh, over the summer, <laughs> uh, with money, It shouldn't surprise you uh, that if you're looking honestly at that stuff, how often you just haven't known what's good for you. What if God, who made you on purpose and with intention and loves you more than you have ever dared to love yourself, what if he actually does know what's good for you? What if he has bent the entire universe in your favor? What if all of it's made for you? All of the things which the Lord asks of us, all of them, do you know that they're good? Just as, in the beginning I was talking about, just as prayer in its very action heals your body and makes you more alive, so the very way of God's kingdom is healing and makes us more alive. Now the irony is, of course, that the invitation is death. (laughs) Um, It's a sharp right turn. Uh, That's the irony. 
As I'm telling you, the way of God's kingdom is life for you. It is, in the words of one uh, biblical author, it is healing for your bones. It is life for you. The invitation, though, is death. To put to death the old things which haven't brought us life, but for some reason we still freaking keep clinging to feverishly. To put to death the ways of life which, which do not promote human flourishing. To die even to ourselves, casting ourselves upon Jesus in the hope that in Him we will have true life. Now many of us, potentially all of us maybe, I don't know, this is, this is my story for sure, I only come to Him after every other ship has sunk. I rarely hear a talk like this and, and go, well, I still got a few cards to play, but never mind. Um, I'm usually like, that's interesting, I'm going to play a couple cards first. Uh, and then we'll see. Like, I think for most of us, we only come to him after every, after every other ship is sunk, and potentially that's the only uh, hope we have left. So, so maybe we just come to him with this hope. I don't, I don't have utter confidence. I just have some kind of weird, fragile faith that maybe he can bring life that I haven't been able to find in all these other things I've been trying to find it in. This is the great paradox of the Christian journey, though. And it is. And, and nobody should tell you differently. The great paradox at the journey, because there's many paradoxes, this is just the one of the journey, is that to live, to die is to live, and to lose is to gain. It, it really is. It's wild. When I think about anything in my life, whether it's financial security, intimacy with my wife, uh, in, any kind of intimacy, really, uh, uh, knowledge of God, confidence in my job, so much of the invitation is to open my hands and be willing to lose all of this and then follow him in obedience, which feels crazy. It feels like I'm going to die or something. It's really dramatic. And to find that on the other side of that is really abundant life, that if I clung to everything so tight in the front end, I never would have had this is the great paradox of this journey. But we are not left to do this blindly. We are not called to a blind faith, friends. Our great captain has gone before us, even to the abyss of death. And he has risen again, and so we follow him knowing that possibility and that promise. This is why Jesus, in our very passage tonight, where we ended it here actually, where he asks the religious leaders to look at him. He calls himself. He doesn't just make like an interesting argument from the text. He does that, but then he calls himself the Lord of the Sabbath. The one who is over the law, who created the law, who spoke the law, who designed the law for our good, which may not offend you, because maybe you've heard Christians talking about Jesus for a long time this way. But for the religious leaders of that day, they know what Jesus just did. He just called himself God. This is the way Jesus talks about himself. This Sabbath law that's existed for 30, for, from us looking back for 3,500 years. At that time, for 1,500 years, this Sabbath law had existed, and Jesus just said he's the one who's Lord over it. His interpretation of it, he, he's the one who gave it. He calls himself that. So if you want to know really what's okay and not okay with the Sabbath, just look at me. He is the one who's walking through grain fields on the Sabbath journeying, probably more than 2,000 steps, enjoying his friends while they pluck heads of wheat and snack on the way, and he's not worried or upset. He's delighting in them. He's the one who's saying that all of this was made for them. And so too of you. You were not made to keep the world spinning, friends. 
And you weren't made for the law. You weren't made for wisdom to be proven true. You weren't made for discipline because God wants the world to look just this way. You weren't made for purity as if you're not pure, everything breaks. All of this, the law, the wisdom, the discipline, the purity, all of this was made for you. This is just how good God is. Tonight we come to the table, uh, which we're gonna do, we do most Tuesdays, uh, and I encourage you in this moment to taste and see that the Lord is good through the sacrament of communion. In His command to rest, in His freedom to love, in His calling for you to confess your sins and repent of your sins, in His invitation to follow Him. Friends, I want you to wake up and realize that all of this is for you. Can you imagine if the world took seriously the commands of Jesus, if they took ser- would it promote human flourishing? If people did not murder each other, how much different would the world be today? If people did not steal from each other, how much different would the world be today? If people did not covet each other's things, if they didn't want what other people had for themselves, how much different would the world be? You realize I'm quoting like the Ten Commandments as I'm doing this? Like we, 3,500 years later, we have not progressed past ten sentences. With all of our enlightenment stuff and all the ways in which we have grown, we have a hundred year period where we've killed more people ever than ever before, percentage-wise even, as far as we can guess. We have not progressed past you shouldn't murder or don't murder. Undergirding all of that, uh, my, call, my pastor um, in college, the one Kirsten actually grew up with, we went to the same church for a while. Um, she wins, she went her whole life until she moved here. Um, uh, the, the, our pastor used to say um, that, that buried in the Ten Commandments are the, he, what he would call, uh, not just, he would call them the, the grand positives, is what he would say. And so God says, thou shalt not murder, but of course, when we know Jesus, what we know he really means is you should honor life. But when we're really immature, we need like fences, you know, <laughs> so don't murder anybody. But as we mature and grow up, he's able to say, do you see that I want you to value life and honor life? Friends, how good are God's commands for us? Very good. And if it's hard for you to see that, I, I, I made this recommendation to you before, I'll probably do it again, because sometimes we need to shake out of this stuff and see things from another perspective. Think about how much you would love it if everybody else lived by those commands. Just take yourself out of it for a minute. If, if all of your friends were committed to their relationships, meant what they said, if you think of the Sermon on the Mount, let your yes be yes, if they didn't sin in their anger, if they uh, forgave their enemies and loved their enemies, if they never stole, if they didn't desire your stuff for themselves, if they promoted life, if they gave up of their own stuff for the sake of others, if they shared things that they had, if they weren't judging you, they were looking first to their own sins before they cast you in dark light, would you not love a world where everybody but you is living that way? The answer, the answer is unambiguously yes. Okay? Unambiguously. For all of you, if you're just even remotely honest, the question is whether I want to live that way and whether I'm willing to risk my life for the chance that God can actually accomplish that sort of redemptive history in the world. What he has done in his body and blood, what he has done in his death and in his resurrection is say, I've got cards up my sleeve that you haven't seen. And I'm demonstrating in history before you a power that you've never encountered. And I'm sending all of my friends who have seen it into the world to tell them about it, that you might hope that there's a greater way. 
and I don't know what you have heard growing up. I don't know what you tell your friends, what you guys talk about, or what podcasts you listen to, or YouTube videos you watch about God. But God did not make you so that he could carry out his, his, his perfect little plan that he wanted from the beginning. He made everything for you. Everything for you. And the things he desires for you are good, and I hope you taste and see that they are good. God loves you, and it is his good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Let's pray. Father, would you help us um, to believe this, even though the whole world speaks against it? So too do our lives and our histories for so many of us, with conditional love and um, resentment and all these things that, that exist in our relationships. Would you pierce that, get behind our defenses and our walls and help us to believe that you actually love us, that you like us, and that when you command things of us, we find uh, our life, we find our freedom, incidentally, when we follow your commands. Help us to look honestly at the other things that we follow and the other um, idols that we serve recognizing whether or not they can deliver on their promises. And I pray that as we come to your table, um, you invite us to consider what you have done for us um, and to recognize that there's not a single person in history, there isn't a, a political ideology, there isn't a religious thought or, or, or painting um, or music uh, or anything, um, amount of money, there isn't anything that has done for us what your son has done for us, Father. May that soften our hearts um, and, and give us a, a little capacity to have the courage uh, to come to him, asking that he would give us this life uh, that he has, um, he's offered us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.